high-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. A very happy new year to you all, and welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of January 4th. Coming up on today's show... Gone in a Flash. A Mini 486. A pure DOS experience. Nox Archaeus is the new Retro Ultima you've been waiting for. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. John, I ask you please to remove your hat and bow your head as we acknowledge the passing of a piece of software that has touched all of our lives. That's right, it's Adobe, formerly Macromedia, Flash. It's game over for the 24-year-old package released in 1996, and it's been used to stream videos, animations, games, and more ever since. Adobe have announced that they will no longer be providing security updates for the famously insecure program, and I'm sure that there'll be plenty of very happy software developers in Adobe Towers not having to deal with that anymore. But what about the rest of us? Will we miss Flash? Will the internet be the same without it? How can life on the internet go on without Flash, John? <laughs> well, yes, I'm, I'm perhaps being overly dramatic because the world moved on a long time ago when it comes to Flash, if we're honest. It's a relic of the days of dial-up. Um, it's had its time in the sun, but we no longer watch our animations in Flash. We've got YouTube for that, and our games are feature... Well, our games can be hosted on feature-rich websites, which are covered by HTML5, so... There's not really that much of a need for it anymore. So the news of its retirement shouldn't come as any surprise. But um, plenty of Flash memories at this end, John. How about you? Can you remember? Well, let's go with the last time that you ran anything on Flash. Can you can you remember when oh, that was? Oh, I, I can't remember the the last time I ran. Well, yes, I can, actually. Um, even just in tw- up to 2018, um, I used a program with my students uh, in uh, in band class on music theory and ear training that was flash based, and this this came out of uh, Japan, and it, it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know what it is about Asia, but they tend to hold on to web standards for much longer than we do in the West. Uh, when I lived in Korea. Uh, tons and tons of sites required you to use Internet Explorer because they needed ActiveX. Do you remember ActiveX, Neil? Oh, yes. Yeah, I remember yeah. it well. And this was in the late 2000s. I mean, ActiveX was already sort of retired from everything else in life. And uh, it was still going strong in Korea, particularly in banking websites and things like that. So uh, anyway, every once in a while as I'm browsing the Internet for retro fun, uh, I come across something that requires Flash, but Chrome has made it so difficult to actually re-enable it, I usually don't bother. Um, it's funny because you, you still hear people talk about Flash-like browser games, you know, when they want to describe, you know, a poor title uh, on, on, a, on a system. They'll say, well, it's like a Flash game. So it's a word that has outlived its market in some ways. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny, my first real website that I made once I got past the uh, the AOL site days was actually 100% Flash-based. I was ahead of the curve back when Flash was new, I guess. <laughs> uh, I used to have a small business selling Lego creations of classic gaming characters, and I sold these through the compelling URL, bricktendo.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of my friends was a web dev, and she designed the complete experience with Flash. Neil, it was amazing. 
Neil, it had menus that animated when you moused over them. Wow. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of lots of good memories with Flash. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have not used it in, in over a year at this point. What can about you, you, Neil? Can you remember what she, uh, your developer, developed that Flash site in? Because I remember there was there was Macromedia Director, but that was more for Shockwave stuff, wasn't it? Um, you know, I have no idea. All I know is that she delivered it to me and I loved it. So okay. uh, I'll have to send her an email, maybe do a follow-up segment. Yeah, well, for me, it has been a long time. In fact, as you mentioned, it's very hard to run anything Flash on Chrome because it was disabled in Chrome by default since 2019. And I can't say I came across any problems with the websites I was using when it was disabled. So it probably goes back a decade or so since I knowingly searched out Flash-based games to procrastinate with when I should have been closing tickets on the service desk. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, I'd relegated Flash in my mind alongside the likes of MySpace and ICQ and Napster and all of those old things from uh, from from way back when. Uh, but a lot of good things did come out of Flash. Um, the first thing that springs to mind for me is the game Meat Boy, which mm. was the poster child for indie game de developers back in 2008. Went on to spawn Super Meat Boy on the Xbox 360 and made those kids millions of dollars. And I guess the other thing that comes to mind is 2005 Salad Fingers, <laughs> the animation series, which was Flash-based. I think there were 11 episodes came out. It still gives me the creeps today. <laughs> did you did you watch Salad Fingers or any other Flash-based animations, John? I remember uh, there was that banana thing, peanut butter jelly time. Do you okay. remember that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's one of my early Flash memories. Uh, some of my best memories actually involve me huddled over an iBook in my small, incredibly small loft in Washington, D.C. It was actually converted stables. This is how small this apartment was. Uh, and, I, I, and this is probably 2004, 2005, watching an Internet cartoon called Homestar Runner. Neil, was Homestar Runner a thing in the U.K.? If it was, it passed me by. I'm not familiar uh, with well, it. it. It was a pretty big deal amongst the crowds that I ran with here. And of course, by the crowds that I ran with, I mean the people that I knew online. <laughs> uh, the, the whole site was entirely Flash-based. And I remember being so envious of my Android-owning friends when Android was first released that they were able to watch Strongbad answer his email on the go uh, until I actually saw how poorly Flash ran on mobile devices. And then I realized why Apple went the way they did on that. Uh, okay. I recognize the name um, Strongbad because he had his own game later on, didn't he? Right, right. It, it all he, he was a character in the Homestar Runner universe. Right. Okay, yeah. that's where he comes from. Well, I've learned something today. But, uh, you know, of course, it wasn't all about blockbuster games or animations. Flash gave us voice chat and webcam chat and all sorts of things to make the Wild West days of the web a little bit more exciting. So I think for that, Adobe Flash, we salute you and we hope that you enjoy your retirement. But you'll always be Macromedia Flash to me. Neil, December may have come to an end, but the classic PC news just keeps on coming. Over on the Hackaday website, it's been reported that the tinkerer Rasteri has built a brand new 486 machine that is fully enclosed in a case no bigger than any of the new crop of mini consoles. And this isn't some emulation box or FPGA nonsense. This is the real deal. Apparently, there was a standard developed in the early 90s called PC-104 that specifically catered to companies who needed 486 machines around for legacy purposes. These are incredibly small boards at only about three and a half inches square, but they contain onboard graphics and tons of pinouts for expandability. It's pretty impressive. Neil, I know you're a big DOS guy. Have you ever heard of these PC-104 boards before? 
I didn't know of them as a standard, no. I've come across a lot of small profile PCs and PCs on expansion cards to give x86 capabilities to other machines and all sorts of things like that. I wasn't aware that this PC-104 standard existed, and so I had a little look into it when I saw this story. Dates back to 1992, as you said, the early 90s, as a standard for embedded systems. So it was probably diligently working away in cache machines, CNC machines, environments where you need something rugged and reliable. So as somebody who had a career in supporting offices, I'm not surprised that that it passed me by. I didn't have a need for that type of system. But I was surprised to see that the standard was updated as recently as 2008, which is recent in my book. I know it's still (laughs) 13 years ago, but that's recent in my book. So I would like to get hold of some of these systems to have a play with. But um, in terms of this particular custom build in the story, John, what can you tell us about it? Um, What makes this particular build special is that Rasteri combined it with a homemade ISA-compatible sound card so that the PC-104 standard didn't have any uh, any onboard sound other than the PC beeper, but he's, he's basically built this sound card so it fits inside the form factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way you expand these boards isn't through cards. Instead, what you have are stackable modules via pins similar to the GPIO pins on the Raspberry Pi, or you know, even more contemporary, the DE10 board of a Mister. the way that those boards sort of stack on top of each other. So what our intrepid creator did was find an ISA sound card that supported all three of the major sort of sound systems, AdLib, Sound Blaster, and General MIDI. And then he reverse engineered it to fit on a smaller board, designed the PCB and all that. Sounds incredibly easy, Neil. Oh, yeah. I could probably <laughs> knock one of those up in an afternoon. <laughs> Uh, In addition, he found, and this is insane to me, an IDE to solid state storage adapter with one meg of storage. Uh, I've heard of IDE to compact flash or SD card adapters before, but nothing with actual memory soldered on the chip. And of course, he puts it all in an attractive aluminum, no, uh, I will not say it your way, Neil, I'm sorry, aluminum (laughs) (laughs) uh, case. And behold, the Wii 86 was born. So, My question to you, Neil, is what place, if any, does a device like this have in this day and age of FPGA devices that also fit in the palm of your hand? Mm. Now, um, IDE solid state adapters, I do have some of them on my desk here, Mm. and and they're great. They just slot into the IDE port, no cable, just a chunk of memory. You mentioned one meg of storage there. Is that the total storage that you had on the device? I believe that that is. I believe that that's the case. So not okay. a, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot of storage. Not a whole here. lot then, but I'm sure it can be increased. But uh, FPGA versus the chips that FPGA mimics, it's not really a competition for me because they are a means to the same end. Uh, you know, if F- FPGA is doing its job, you'll get exactly the same result. So I don't know how much these systems go for, but would I be right in guessing that they go for a lot less than an FPGA setup that can give you a good 486 experience, John? Well. One of the things I discovered in doing some research around these boards is even though they're available, uh, manufacturers aren't really keen on putting the price for them on websites. So that's kind of a red flag. I think that these may be items that the people that make these boards, they're looking to sell in bulk. You know, they want an order of a thousand of these to put on a pallet. They don't want to sell them individually to uh, retro computing enthusiasts. So. Right. OK, so it's going to be a case of trawling eBay or perhaps we can find a device that had these in and then hunting those down to tear the guts out maybe maybe but it sounds like the main hurdle with the whole project was audio and that's now been resolved with that wonderful bit of engineering so 
barring any odd compatibility issues that I'm not aware of, I'd say I'd say go for it. I'd love to tinker for, tinker with one. Um, you know, what, what do you think, John? Are you aware of any problems with it when it comes to running DOS on there, or does it all look you good? Know, I think that there's always going to be a certain segment of retro computer enthusiasts who want real hardware. No matter how good FPGAs get, no matter how good emulation gets, they they want an actual thing to run their actual, you know, software. So there's there's that. And uh, plus the fact that this guy basically built a sound card from scratch. I mean, who does that sort of thing? Mm. That's that's a, that's top quality engineering in my book. So I applaud the project just, you know, on principle. Um I think if uh, Mr. Rasteri has a business plan in mind, if he could order, you know, say a, a couple pallets of these and manufacture them, you know, complete for half the cost of a Mister with all in them, with a case and everything, I, I think there's enough DOS gamers out there that 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 would like to have a little real Mini Four Eight Six. I think I think he'd have some takers. The options for DOS fans continue in our next story today, which was submitted to our subreddit by Arthur underscore Ludd. Thank you, Arthur. And it's about the news of a new branch of DOSBox called DOSBox Pure. DOSBox is a very mature DOS emulator, which makes it so much easier for us old DOS fans to fire up our old software on a modern machine. But if there's one thing DOS is not, it's easily accessible. It's easy for some of us to forget the struggle we went through to master MS-DOS to learn how to navigate in the command prompt to keep our folders neat and organized and sometimes just to even find and launch the program that we wanted. And we want new generations to be able to find and enjoy classic DOS games without being put off by a flashing command prompt and no idea what to do next. John, for me, when I got my first PC, it was a combination of a booklet that came with the uh, the Packard Bell PC that I bought, welcomed me to MS-DOS. And then also simply typing in the command help in DOS, <laughs> and it would list all of the commands available. Those were the tools at my disposal to master it in the early 90s. And I had all the time in the world back then to type in every command, add a slash question mark to the command to see what the command switches were, and to just repeatedly break my PC over and over again and reinstall <laughs> DOS until I had a grasp of it. That was my MS-DOS education. Can you remember how you got to grips with it? Well, I, I came to DOS pretty early on because, as we've talked about before, the Amiga and other you know GUI-based operating systems, even the Mac, uh, they were such a small percentage of the overall PCs that were in the market. You know, almost everybody had IBM-based PCs uh, in the states if you had a if you had a computer at all. And um and so and I'm talking about once you get past the the eight bit era, obviously the Commodore sixty four very sure. popular. But um so I came to DOS pretty pretty early on, I'd say in the late eighties. And um, I've got to say, I never had a lot of the issues that people, you know, talk about as they wax nostalgic about their early DOS issues. Um, maybe it's because I never tried to play too many high-end games that required a lot of complex configuration. But I've never once had to say, like, reallocate memory or fiddle with IRQ settings to get a game to run right. Uh, for me, it was always put the disk in, go to the directory, type DIR, find the executable, and run it. Um, I guess I missed out on all the fun, Neil. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I do know that trying to run DOS games on modern machines can be a nightmare, even with the versions of uh, DOSBox that I've tried in the past. So I'm glad to know that there's an easier solution out there. 
Yeah, yeah. You, you, it sounds like you missed out on the fun of trying to squeeze enough conventional memory to to run some of these games and mm-hmm. get the maximum out of your 640k. But um, <laughs> those struggles could be a thing of the past because DOSBox Pure promises to give us some interesting features. First up, it can launch DOS games from zip files. So you don't need to configure your DOSBox config files to mount a folder and install your games like you did back in the day. This is more like console game emulation. Just like you have a collection of ROMs for your Super Nintendo, you have a folder of zip files for your MS-DOS games, and then you just browse your front end of DOS games and, and launch it. So this is built for the RetroArch front end, uh, which many will be familiar with. Uh, so it is, you know, it's super simple. It's easy to set up. But wait, there's more. It Ooh. also it also includes a built-in MIDI synth, so you can get that MT32 or Sound Canvas style music in your games where they support general midi or the mt32 and get this john it includes a rewind feature so when when you screw up in your game you can just rewind the emulation it will shoot back through it and you can try again and i think that i need i need that in my life that is a very cool feature isn't it yeah was it was it prince of persia sands of time i think had that feature yes you're right you're right some other games but now you can do it on any any old dos game you want which is great so it's also got support for mounting cd-rom isos from inside a zip file so everything really can be self-contained within a zip file for each game it's got save states of course and lots of support for joy pads and other, other modern input devices so all in all it sounds like a nice package doesn't it it sounds like a nice way to make dos gaming accessible i can't fault the feature set it's built on a solid dos box foundation neil something is uh, <laughs> bothering me neil i can tell what what, what, is, what what's going on man <laughs> You know me too well, John. Um, you know, typing CD games, CD SimCity, looking for the name of the executable. For me, that's all part of the DOS experience. It's not about just launching straight into the game. If you want to be really sad about it, watching a DOS game installer run through, it is part of the experience. You know, the anticipation of waiting for a game to install, it's almost a guilty pleasure for me. So does that make me a bad person, John? <laughs> Would you go for a DOS front end that hides DOS from you and drops you directly into the games? Or like me, do you prefer that experience of almost feeling like you're in control of the machine, you know, like you're hacking the machine, bashing out these commands in the command prompt to uh, get the goal, the reward of that sweet game running? How, how do you feel about it? Well, you know, I, I like having options. You know, for example, there is a certain thrill that I get when I load up an emulator and I have to look up the commands just to get a game to run. Uh, <clears throat> this happened to me just the other day when I was playing around with the Tatung Einstein emulator, Neil, uh, <laughs> having to type the commands to get the game to load, hearing the disc spin up, you know, even virtually a lot of the emulators do that these days. Um, you know, I could probably do without the load time, but there's something to going through some small amount of effort to get a game to work uh, in, in the same way that you did back in the day. It does kind of puts you back in that 80s experience. But, you know, with DOS, I've just seen that C prompt so many times. It's, you know, it's white text on a black screen, or if you go back even further, you know, green text or whatever. There's nothing exotic or magical about it at all to me personally. So in this case, just drop me in the game, Neil. Just drop me in the game. Fair enough, if that's what you want. And however you like to enjoy DOS, this certainly does give you a new way of approaching it especially if you want the games without the command prompt itself or you want to enjoy the games in an arcade cabinet, for example, without having to pull a keyboard out. So it certainly has its place, and that rewind feature sounds very useful indeed. So um, I think it has a lot to offer, whether or not you're a hardcore DOS user or not. And you can find the link to this 
and all of our other stories in the show notes. Neil, this next bit might be the feel-good story of the year. Uh, After many years in development and a wildly successful crowdfunding campaign, Nox Archaist has been unleashed upon the general populace. Uh, Taking inspiration from the classic role-playing series Ultima, The Bard's Tale, uh, Nox Archaist not only looks like it came from the 80s, but it was actually developed on period-specific hardware. Uh, This game was coded on an Apple II, though admittedly it was a souped-up Apple II, 128K, uh, but it was uh, it was developed on the computer itself, and uh, was developed by an outfit called, appropriately enough, uh, 6502 Studios. So Neil, I know you're a massive Ultima fan, though if I know my Neil lore, as I think I do, uh, you jumped into the series a bit after the first couple games, am I right? That, that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. I'm impressed. I, I didn't get on board until Ultima 6. Yeah. I was playing RPGs before that, but Ultima specifically, Ultima 6, which is where the graphics really started to ramp up compared to the previous versions. So mm-hmm. this game, I'm really glad that our listeners made us aware of on the subreddit because I hadn't actually seen it. And you're right. It really does capture the look and feel of those earlier Ultima games. And if it has the storyline to go with it, then it will work. It will work well. The two things that made Ultima attractive to me were the storyline with its surrounding lore, both in game and in the feelies that came in the box and accessibility. You know, compared to other RPGs, Ultima on the surface, it seemed quite lightweight when you dropped into it. It was quite easy to get into. And then later in the game, that's when the depth starts to unravel. Whereas many other RPGs assume you've been playing D&D your whole life and you're just thrown straight in at the deep end. So that was one of the attractions of Ultima for me. So um, what are your first impressions, John? Where, do you, where does this project sit on the scale of classic RPGs? And is it worth a shot today, do you think? Well, for me personally, this is a style of game, you know, the 8-bit computer RPG that I never really came into contact with back in the day. Um, I did have Ultima 4 for my Atari 8-bit computer, but it was a, shall we say, liberated copy. So uh, I had no docs, I had no map, I didn't have anything, so I was lost. From That's the impossible, game. yeah, yeah, because yeah. you had to have the map on the wall, and you also had to have the um, the runic alphabet, so you could actually decipher signs, and you could exactly, read exactly. So, yeah, that's impossible. Uh, for, further complicating things, it also took absolute ages to load. Uh, I think it was on three or four discs, and I, 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 I kid you not, it took like half an hour just to get the game on the screen. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time with Ultima 4. But this looks like a great place to familiarize yourself with the genre. It seems like developers have stuck to the feel of an early 80s RPG, but they've streamlined it um, a lot. You know, they've 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 taken out some of the things that just don't make sense in this day and age. Uh, a lot of the more unforgiving and confusing elements of the UI have been removed. However, they have kept uh, some of the conventions. Like when you go up to a door, you still have to open every door in the game by pressing O. So it's it, it sort of ticks those nostalgia boxes a little bit. Uh, looking at their online shop. They've got a digital edition currently on sale for 20 bucks, and a box set, uh, various box sets with various degrees of feelies. So if you want that cloth map, there is your chance. Um, Neil, speaking of feelies, which is, sounds weird, uh, <laughs> maybe there's a better way to phrase this question. What's the best trinket you have ever received in a game? 
<laughs> well, uh, of course, Ultima games were the king of the feelies. My wall was covered in the cloth maps that came with them. And I also loved a good VHS tutorial video. I remember when I bought 3D construction kits from Domark, it had a gold-colored VHS video oh. in it. Yeah, we are. Yeah. And uh, so, of course, I'd have to take that downstairs to watch that on, on the big telly in the lounge. And in it, you'd see people create these incredible worlds that I never came anywhere near close to recreating in my own experiments. And then the feelings that I really abused the most were the bundled T-shirts. Do you remember, like, um, there's the Shadow of the Beast T-shirt? That came you know, I, I've always wondered about that Shadow of the Beast T-shirt. Did they just assume that all Shadow of the Beast players were going to be exactly the same size? How did that work? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. It's a good question. But, I mean, that one is a real collector's item now. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I got one with a game called Messiah, which was, it was a funny game where you played, like, this cherub that went around doing terrible things to people ultra-violent. Uh, <laughs> whenever I had some DIY to do, perhaps some painting, I'd think, oh, what what old clothes do I have for this job? And I'd grab one of the game t-shirts, John, just because I thought I was too cool to go outside in the real world in a game t-shirt <laughs> when I was a younger man. I mean, what would people think of me if they knew I was into microcomputer games and not console gaming, John? Be, that would be your ruin. It would be your ruin. Be, I'd be ruined. My reputation <laughs> would be over. So uh, I ruined all those t-shirts with paint, and now, of course, I spend my time scouring eBay looking to buy them again. <laughs> How about you, John? Well, it seems like all of the best feelies came with computer games. I think that it's it's pretty common knowledge that the whole uh, the whole reason why these things were even invented was to prevent piracy. Um, and it started with the you know the Zork games and a lot of the more you know text based games just to give you more of a feel of the universe. But since uh, most of my computer games came from shall we say uh, nefarious sources, uh, I never had any of that stuff. And uh, the console games, because since by and large they didn't need to disincentivize piracy, they didn't have to include a mm -hmm. bunch of stuff with their games uh i do remember a couple things i remember that um that uh killer instinct for the super nintendo came with a soundtrack cd but that was about as good as it got there was nowhere near the awesomeness that came with pc games um but you know i've always enjoyed getting big thick manuals and posters and my role-playing games on the various uh, nintendo systems and i always bought strategy guides for those games so uh, i ended up with mountains of material to pour through even if i never did get that fabled cloth map <laughs> well um you mentioned the price you mentioned it was available for twenty dollars and there were different editions of this on the website i had a look and um yeah you've got the twenty dollar digital download which is fair i think that's a fair price for the effort and the work that's gone into this and then you're looking at 70 or 100 dollars for the physical and collector's editions which they do come with trinkets and they do come with a lovely cloth map and i understand that margins are probably pretty low even at that price because all of these things have to be produced in small runs for such a project. But um, the one thing that's nagging me about that price, $70 or $100, is that it does take you into the classic collectible RPG territory. Do you want to spend $100 on this game, or would you rather spend $100 on a classic RPG for your collection? And that is what you will easily spend on one of the Ultima games these days. And that, that's a tricky one for me, John. I agree. I agree. So if you do want to get in on the Nox Archaist action and score a writ from the queen, a crown jewel, a coin of the realm, and oh yeah, the game, uh, you can check out their shop linked in the show notes. Happy exploring. 
Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favourite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.